Welcome to episode 24 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dan Wellington. Hello. And Dave Barker. Hey Tony, hey listeners. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. Which I feel like, I can't remember if I've actually ever mentioned it on the podcast before or not, but if you do join the Patreon, like one of the um, like rewards that you get is you get invited into the patreon only like facebook chat that we have where we regularly chat with our patrons and they can hassle any of the show hosts at a moment's notice if they so choose yep yeah no it's a, a nice chat that and uh, we get random little things posted in there from time to time which is uh which is entertaining and fun and uh, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been nice chatting with the likes of sort of like matt and such on there seeing yep. the kind of things that he's up to and uh, uh what interesting hobby stuff we're all up to so yeah if you feel like hassling any of us at any time or to hear about anything we're up to just join the patreon and you can do and you can be the latest uh, notification going off on my phone all the time welcome back to the show dan it's been a little while since we've had you on hi yes um i've been doing stuff like work <laughs> and squealing excitedly about uh Squeak pigs. Yes, so uh, it might be worth saying that we're recording this uh, the week immediately after Warhammer Community did a big reveal thing with some some hints and and teasers at some sort of new like feral orc related release coming up, and I'm really excited about it. That is my <laughs> jam. Well, it's very much uh, your jam and butter since there's also a brand new Admet Codex following yeah, that, right that behind too. it as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm, y- your wallet's mm. going to be in for a fun time in the next couple of months. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, that Cursed City looks good as well. <laughs> <laughs> there's some really good stuff coming up. I am really curious about this new Orc release, as I'm sure you could imagine, because yeah. I too will be interested to see if and what I can possibly be adding to the death goals. I would have to say, Dan, that uh, Admech and uh, Snakebite seem a a fair distance from each other, technologically. Well, uh, yeah, variety is the spice of life and all that. (laughs) True, true, true. Don't want to be the same. The Snakebites just are using the technology of the past, and is that not what the Admech strive to achieve? I mean, yeah, that's true. (laughs) I mean that that's some good spin. <laughs> <laughs> um that's all the podcast is really, propaganda. 
propaganda propaganda for playing narrative 40k dad no one needs convincing of that everyone should already be doing it yeah <laughs> uh, so speaking of narrative play and what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, we're going to be taking a look at the latest Flashpoint series from White Dwarf. So this is going to be the Flashpoint Charadon Warzone. Now, this is um, interesting because it's a little different um, and it's a little different take on a Flashpoint to the previous one with the Agamon system, whereas that was a rather involved multi-phase narrative campaign system that was all self-contained. Um, they've taken a little bit different approach this time with the Charadon Warzone, where instead it's basically a series of theatres of war and a couple of crusade relics and battle traits, but they're all meant to be set in and around the Charadon Warzone, which is the setting of the soon-to-be-released um, Book of Rust um, and the Plague Purge mission pack. So it's it's all sort of tied into that, and in fact, they mention in here that these rules can be used in combination with the new Book of Rust stuff. So it's a, almost a bit more of a tie-in sort of flashpoint, this one, rather than a standalone system. So that's going to be interesting to look at. Cool. And I think, as always with these rules, as I've read through them, they do seem like, um, just as we've talked about in the past, you can pick out... Uh, the bits you're interested, you can use them for standalone battles, or <clears throat> you can use them as part of, you know, you could represent a different uh, different world uh, as part of your own ongoing crusade. So I think there's lots of narrative opportunities in these uh, these uh, these three white dwarfs. Mm. I do think that this is actually a really good one, like you say, for cherry picking parts rather than just having to, you know, play what, nine games to yeah. encompass <laughs> all the different theaters of war. Just, you know, if you like one of them, play that one. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be our main topic in a little bit. And then before that, we will be going through our usual paint station garrison. And spoilers, the battle wagon is still not done. <laughs> um, but other things have been, so that's up fine. Uh, and then we're also going to return to our community edge highlights for the first time in a little, a little while to see what all our wonderful Facebook community members have been up to basically since the start of the new year. And uh, yeah, that should be it. So really, we're going to have quite a, a sort of hobby and... Um, hobby and White Dwarf podcast. Yes, right? Hobby and White Dwarf. There we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, so unless there's anything else either of you two want to mention before we jump over to Paint Station Garrison. Oh, I'll see you in the Paint Station Garrison. Let's go. Paint Station Garrison. And we're back, guys. So we are in the Paint Station Garrison now, and it's been a while since he's been on. So, Dan, tell us about all the wonderful things you've been working on recently. All right. So... Uh, what things have I been working on recently? Um, just today, I started building some uh, Adeptus Titanicus Warhound Titans, which is um, in addition to the ones I already own. Uh, my uh, my Legio is the Legio Mortis. They are proper bad guys. Um, and I thought I'd 
start building I've, I've got some more warhounds i thought i'd build them a bit more corrupt than the other ones that were built pretty much out of the box so i'm starting to kind of battle damage them a bit one of them's already got a toe out jo out of its joint uh and i'm gonna have some like loose cabling and stuff like that i think that's the plan uh so they should be a bit more going towards the nurgle side which i believe is their uh eventual post heresy um ending up position also on my desk currently is a project for um another person i've been asked to build some uh, make some forge world custodians uh, the um aquilon terminators i think they're called yeah uh, i think it's aquilon um i had to spell it out recently when i was um, <laughs> helping one of our community members get his um his own uh, Aquilon custodian terminators yep. up on the community roundup so, so there, there's uh, I believe six, that's how it's pronounced yeah there's six of them and there's two of the um, uh, custodies contempt to dreadnoughts one with the spear and one with the sword um, oh, do they, are they the ones that come with the shield or is it just yes yeah, so there's a, there's a sword and shield one and the spear one doesn't have a shield um, but his, his uh, spear is like a gun as well I think You've got a guardian spear. As yeah, you it's just a giant guardian spear. Um, so I'm I've built them and I'm painting them. I it's part of me enjoys it because I'm kind of putting a lot more attention into them than I would normally do with most of my models because um, they're you know quite elite special units. But part of me hates that because I've got to pick out like all the individual bits of gold uh, and there's a lot of it. Um, also, forge, the Forge World kits are really nice, but the instructions, not so much. I mean, not user-friendly. No. So I found out that in the start of the instructions booklet, it gives all of the pieces, individual, all the individual components, a number. But that number does not correspond to anything that's actually on the components themselves. So... <laughs> I don't know what use that is. It's just there. It's it's like the it's like the old Meccano tactic. The old Meccano kits in the fifties and sixties and seventies were deliberately shipped with false instructions to force you to figure it out yourself, so you become a better engineer. That's all they're doing. Dan. Well, that, that <laughs> was might... that really a thing? That was really a thing. <laughs> wow, that is like devious. I've never heard that. That's clever. Well, I mean. <clears throat> It's maybe it's maybe you should treat it as a, as an urban legend, but I, I I honestly believe it's true. It's it's possible that Forge World are doing that, and their goal is to make people have to buy more stuff to replace the ones they messed up. That, that could happen. <laughs> I mean, I have heard that some of these newer um, like GW kits are starting to become rather eccentric when it comes to building them. The um, the new Necron psychomancer i think i've Ooh. seen a few people online yeah. talking about how he is a challenge to build lovely model amazing yeah. sculpt apparently he is a bollocks put together i can imagine uh, I, I, we had a painted date with some of the lads from our club online uh, to stay in touch on friday and um, one of the, one of the guys luke had built one recently and uh, he said exactly the same. That was the first thing he said on the podcast. Well, as, as uh, you know, well, sorry, this is a podcast on our chat online. <laughs> uh, the first thing he said was, 
a number of swear words and how how difficult it was <laughs> to put together. <laughs> and I mean, um, some of the new uh, Luminef Realm Lord kits they've previewed that are all these sort of like air elemental themes. Some of those look like they've got some real spindly bits. I only saw, I think it, it was early today, uh, the first time I saw the pair of like dualist elves or whatever, where one of them is like pirouetting via their tiptoes off the like thin bladed shoulder pad of another elf below them. And I'm just like, I, uh. I cannot imagine that's going to stay together for long. Yeah, a lot of these modern kits do are balancing on one leg as though they're all playing every single model, or at least every single character model is playing the floor is Lara. <laughs> See, I'm kind of surprised the new Lilith isn't actually balancing on her hair like Jane Zar was yeah. doing. <laughs> true, true. I mean, they do look dynamic and cool, don't get me wrong. Oh, they do. They look cool. amazing. It's just that there must be some warriors out there that do stand on two feet while they're in battle. <laughs> so, yes, did you get your Aquilan custodes together in the end? Uh, yes, yeah, so they they are all built. Although um, one of the uh, one of the dreadnoughts has his uh, right elbow on his left arm, and vice versa, but uh, it's it's barely noticeable. Um, just uh, just one of those things I didn't realise until I glued it in place. They, they looked to me like they were the same component until it was glued in place, and I realised one of them that it has a slight raised area on one side. Okay, I I can tell you actually I did something very similar years ago when I was putting together some of my guard, um, and it was actually using the the plastic like rucksack backpacks from the Kachan heavy weapon teams, and because of the way the spade is like strapped to the backpack, I assumed it went one way around. If that right. makes sense, um, where the spade handle sticks down towards the ground and the spade head was sticking up because it just looked like the natural fit. Right. Only after I'd I stuck these on, undercoated them and started painting them, did one of my friends point out that because they're catchans, they've got some like leaves on there as well. And right. the leaves are clearly uh, upside down <laughs> the way <laughs> I put these backpacks on. They're like drooping straight up into the air. Um, and I was like, oh, these things did have a certain orientation. It's just, it didn't. And then when I looked closer, I realized that it, the little pouches, like the tiny pouches yeah. on the sides of the bags, now clearly had the like tops of the pockets at the bottom. So that so that the, guardsman is walking around with like bullets and grenades hanging, like falling no, 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 out no. behind him. <laughs> that platoon was walking oh, no. around <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> It, it's, it's not like that at all. They're not upside down. The um, Everything on Gatschan is uh, alive and alert all the time. They're just very alert leaves. That's all they're <laughs> They're in hunting mode. But yeah, I think that's the the worst case scenario where I've ever like realised after the fact I've put something on the wrong way around. And the almost thing like, how did I not realise at the time? But yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm... I'm blaming my mistakes squarely on Forge or Construction uh, instructions. But anyway, en enough whinging about Forge World. Uh, I also did some other stuff. Um, before the, the Custodies, I had a, a different... Well, I've, it's still kind of ongoing. I've got a project to do a bunch of Kraken Tyranids. Um, 
So these are the the inverse of the ones you've been doing, I understand. Yes. Um, so I saw you put on the Facebook group your little like yeah. how-to guide how you've been doing them, and yeah. I was impressed by how like how cleverly it's done in the layer choices and the contrast paints and the order to it to actually make a very good, quick, yes. highly cracking paint scheme. It's I am all about efficiency. Um, it's yeah, it's uh, uh, I I I've kind of got the idea because, well, I mean, it was a project someone asked me to to do the Kraken scheme, um, but when they first released the the contrast paints, there was a, a Kraken scheme with just contrast paints that looked really good, and I I just thought, well, if I just kind of do that but a bit different, <laughs> then it's going to look really really good. Uh, so it's it's basically contrast. Um, using the medium to to mix it over um, a, a, like sprayed and then dry brushed first, so you got that extra le- level of uh, of kind of um, contrast. That's slightly awkward to talk about contrast <laughs> and contrast paints. And uh, okay, whatever. So uh, yeah, so we we've, we've got a dry brush, then we got contrast over that uh, with the medium mixed in for the. Uh, the the skeleton bone i think it is skeleton horde skeleton horde. Yes, yes over the, the over the kind of like bone skin uh and then we've got uh, flesh terror red uh neat over the carapace and then i've a, a bunch of other little bits but i've added some little um kind of notches to the edge of the carapace with a a, a lighter red just to give it a little extra appearance mm. of um uh, kind of texture and I think that just elevates it slightly above like just contrast um, I mean I think the application of the flesh terrors red is done so well because that is a strong paint like it is, oh yeah it's a very bright color but also being translucent because it's a contrast paint yeah Find, finding a space for it to work like you say neat without needing a medium or a wash or anything <laughs> yeah. is rare but the way you've got it to work over the sort of skeleton hard dry brush yeah well base it, works so well it works well because it's tyranids uh and they don't have to look kind of neat um, yes i've i've always heard this that contrast paints are brilliant for anything organic yes you know they, they yeah. work really well in that sort of medium yeah um so yeah i've I, i've finished just over or just under a thousand points of them uh and that has taken me since like mid-february maybe maybe a bit later than that actually it's not taking me very long i was gonna Um, say that's not at all when no by comparison what i have been working on recently is a tyranid commission myself yeah um so since the last episode i've now finished the carnifix the Tyranid Prime and the unit of like six Tyranid Warriors is basically done now. They just need some tiny details and then basing. And nice. the bases are already done. They just need sticking on them. Perfect. Um, which meant that last night I was starting to apply my first base layers to the Winged Hive Tyrant. Hey. Um, which was fun because I don't think I've ever painted a winged monster that big before. Um, oh, the wings are interesting. Yeah, that's gonna be fun. Um, see what sort of like levery batwing effect I can come up with, but should be 
It's pretty yeah. fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of like the reward piece at the end of the <laughs> um, yeah the little task. So everything else, like the Carnivix was good to sort of gauge the paint scheme. Um, the Prime was a good version of, for applying extra detail and making it a character model. And the Warriors have been my tester for, right, I have the scheme down now for this. How quick can I get through like a squad, like a decent sized squad? Yeah. Um, and I was quite pleased with how quickly I'm knocking out the um, the, sort of like the feathering effect. Yeah. Uh, to say that I am I'm hand painting the edges to the carapace rather than just dry brushing it. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely something that you you get quicker at as you do it. Yeah, I've found that that is that's also what I kind of expected would be the case of all the parts of the scheme. That's the one that would speed up the most as I've been doing it. Yeah, definitely. Um, which to say that you know, I'm at the moment I'm just doing commission work in like my spare time on evenings, a couple of nights a week. So it's not like I'm in a position to sit down and do eight hours a day. Otherwise, no. <laughs> these things have been knocked out so much quicker. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with the pace that I've got at the moment for the availability of time I have to work on them. That's cool. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, also, I've been doing some Death Guard. <laughs> and some Death Guard. Uh, just, just to jump back to mine. Uh, so this, <laughs> is the, this is the other thing that I've been doing for myself rather than for other people. Um, is is Death Guard, uh, which are very dirty as they should be, uh, very rusty, and I've been using my my new best friend, the sponge, for these. Um, it does sound like a silly question, but what kind of sponge? Like, what have you used? So I have I have used a standard uh, cheap kitchen scourer sponge for uh for like washing up uh i just tore a chunk off that and used that for uh for this um i've experimented with the 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 sponge stuff that that used to come at the back of blister packs as well uh that i think comes in packaging for other things uh you don't really get it in the blister packs anymore but uh, that's it's slightly. Oh yes, I remember that. Yeah, stuff, slightly yeah. finer stuff. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's has the same effect. Uh, I think you probably use that if you wanted to be slightly neater with it, rather than messy. But mm. uh, I like messy, so that's what we got. Um, messy so, yeah. is in its own way efficient. Yes. So uh, my my death guard are. Um, I've been doing them kind of. Two hundred and fifty points ish a month. With the this uh, just to just to kind of like do something for me for a bit, uh, I'm not even sure if I'm going to actually play them or just kind of like keep them or sell them or something. I don't know. Just fancy doing them. Um, is is it just the marines you're doing, Dan? Or you uh, doing well, I've currently I've so so far I've built some pl- I've done some plague marines and a couple of characters, um, and I'm eyeing up a plague burst crawler next. Okay. Which uh, should be a bit more stretching the sponge muscle, if you will. <laughs> nice. Uh, give the uh, give the scheme a proper a proper showing off. I think proper scrub down. Yes, uh, I I've, I realise this probably is a bit weird if you haven't actually seen the pictures of them. <laughs> now that I think about it, basically they're uh, they're kind of um, 
the, a dirty off-white bonish kind of color initially but then the the sponge is used to sponge on um the metal colors so that the the kind of trim is is covered but it also spills out over the rest of the model to be like battle damage so by the end of it they are basically all just like metal and brown and rust colored they look they look good um so you can see them over on the facebook group can't you yes uh the other aspect of them is that they have quite a pronounced purple for the all the like mutations and weird stuff fleshy bits yes which is um a nice contrasting color there uh, interestingly there is basically no green on them which is rare for death guard i think yeah but i think that can still work as a scheme i think the sort of you know deathly rusty bone yeah texture is also another good option for death guard. I, i've described them as dry death guard rather than <laughs> wet death guard yeah, that's that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Yep. <laughs> is is that not what Thousand Suns are? I mean, it's getting on for that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they do look a bit dusty. Uh, and then Dave, what have you been up to? Yeah, uh, a little bit. <clears throat> I wasn't on the uh, the paint station garrison section of the last podcast, so it's been a couple of couple of episodes since I've done this. But uh, I've done a bit. I've been a bit slow recently. I've been uh, working a lot. Some other things. So you um, have just a couple of uh, hundreds of models done, no doubt. Well, I've only finished three squads since last time. Last time was on, so I finished uh, five more firstborn a Death Watch to complete a squad of ten Death Watch, which uh, I really enjoy painting them all the varied shoulder pads and stuff. Um, I uh, finished two old, uh, the old Beetleback Warlord Titans for Epic, so not the the fancy new stuff that Dan's been doing, um, <laughs> but the stuff that's been sat in the lead mountain for 30 years been unattended. So. Classics. Uh, they, yeah, they really were classic. They were really fun to paint and a bit of fun to, to practice my free hand on as well. So they, they, they're more loyalist than yours, uh, Dan. Um, <laughs> with the uh, uh, Legio Ignatum, is it the Fire Wasps? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, one of them. And the other one, I made up my own Legio, uh, the Legio Adiposi uh alicornus so the fat flying unicorns yes uh, and they uh they, they they're painted to match my rainbow warriors with a variant uh rainbow warrior symbol that, that's got like six six limbs and uh, a horn pointing upwards to, to represent <laughs> flying unicorns uh, well flying alicorns i guess it is if they've got wings and, and legs um so they were fun really enjoyed that i've been doing a lot of uh epic scale painting recently over the last few months and, and they were a lot of fun especially with the retro bit of them and the other retro old hammer bit that i've done i, I posted post up a few days ago i painted 10 uh, tactical rtbo ones uh, the the original plastic space marines in the colors of the old mentor legion um, the the green and white uh, colors the green bodies and the white limbs and, uh, and the the owl symbols that i painted on the shoulder pads as well rather than the modern uh, hawk head in red uh, i just uh, i couldn't put the modern symbol on the old miniatures it just didn't feel right <laughs> But they, they're a lot of fun. They've attracted a lot of interest uh, over the last few days um, on social media since I put them up. And um, yeah, I think everybody's who's of a similar age to me is is having a little bit of a uh, an old hammer vibe as we, we pick through the, uh, the the lead mountain and catch up with some of that painting during lockdown. <laughs> Lots of projects out there for uh, old school ultramarines in second edition colours and. And, and such like things like the mental legion i've done and a lot of people out there doing this kind of thing i've i've enjoyed seeing some of the um uh the like newer 
bang up to date marines uh, painted in the like old second edition style ultramarine scheme with the red bolts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they they do look great, and that. I, and that's one of the things I'm I'm doing next because I I always like to start a new project with a bit of old hammer, uh, but actually on my desk in front of me now, work in progress. I've got five uh, intercessors and a, a lieutenant in that I'm going to paint as uh, mental legion as well. Uh, cool. So pull them out with some primaries. So. Uh, same color schemes, I use the same shoulder pad symbols, uh, maybe a little bit more green on the bolter casings, but um, uh, yeah, I'm doing exactly that. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and actually, I've got two squads of intercessors on my uh, tabletop. The other one is uh, going to be a Death Watch uh, squad of intercessors as well. Nice. Um, I've got a, a Barbarian Lord just to mix it up from Forge of Ice and Fire, was a limited edition run of that. Uh, a very nice sculpt from Kev White, so. Uh, uh, if you know his sculpts, you know he's, he produces very great barbarians and stuff that are fun to paint. And then for our ongoing Space Hulk project that we want to start playing when we get back together, I've got an, one of the old metal Terminator captains, one of the original ones, the ones that represented Cloud Runner from the Dark Angels, but I'm going to paint up as a, a Rainbow Warrior Terminator captain for uh, for some Space Hulk games. Cool. Um, and then after that, my next old Hammer project is going to be... <laughs> just about to start it so i think it's worth mentioning uh i'm going to do a rogue trader era orc battle wagon so i yep. don't know if you guys remember these yes uh, sort of squatter a little bit more wider than than the model ones with blades sticking out of the wheels and uh, uh it had the old rule in, in was it first or second edition that his carrying capacity was however many orcs you could fit in it without them falling off when you moved <laughs> it. yeah i think that was second edition and wasn't it yeah. wasn't it if they fell off they were dead yeah, that's right. Class. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be painting one of those up to, to expand my old army a little bit, but also to, to scratch some of that old hammer itch. So any uh, given clan choice? I think it's going to be goths. I've, I've always had a soft spot for the Bad Moon, but I, um, I want to do a few units of everything, but I think I need to start with the goths. And I'm going to also, in the near future, I'm going to do out a load of the old monopose uh, plastic uh, orcs and Gretchen, I'll do those at Goffs as well. Well, depending on how much you might want to repurpose it as a battle wagon, I imagine that old kit could actually work quite well as some variety of chariot-style contraption being pulled by these new <laughs> beasts. Because I reckon the scale yeah, would probably absolutely. be about right for something like that. Is that... Is that a tactic to stall Dave so that you will finish your battle wagon first? <laughs> um, I mean, I could try, but I suspect it's probably not going to happen. Think of it as an incentive, Tony, a challenge. Yeah. Maybe if I start <laughs> painting mine red, I'll paint it quicker. Well, you know, that's the way it works, right? <laughs> well, well, you will if you paint it with Flesh Terror's red contrast. <laughs> It is a nice colour. I, I was thinking as you were saying that earlier about Flesh Terror's Red. That's what I use for my Flesh Eaters, and it's uh, it's such a it's very confusing. Flesh Terror's Red painting Flesh Eaters. But I did them over a mid-tone grey base, uh, yeah. actually a German uniform grey colour from World War II, uh, just to desaturate the red, but it still gives a, a lot of depth and tone, um, and, and quite a different effect. Uh, hmm. Really, really uh, versatile paint. Yeah, I think so. It's, mm. I mean, if nothing else, it's great for blood. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I can imagine and, that. 
And I guess the last thing that I'm painting at the moment uh, on, on my list of the moment, I'm painting myself six objective markers because I've signed up for a tournament in June. I've never been to a 40k tournament Ooh, before. Let's hope it goes ahead. Yeah. Which is, yeah, a small one. Well, hopefully there's a chance it may get cancelled. It's a 12-person tournament uh, in Saffron Walden in Essex. And uh, there's just a couple of us going out from our club. Uh, one of the lads lives down there. And uh, just a chance for a small tournament to get back together, uh, try it out safely and... Um, get some games in but i i didn't i realized i didn't have any objective markers for my rainbow warriors so i've just got six 40 millimeter mdf bases and i am painting rainbow warriors symbols and numbers on them this evening please tell me you're doing them in six different rainbow color coded patterns <laughs> uh, well i will yes i will be adding because i use six colors in my rainbow when i'm painting them, so I, I certainly i'm thinking the numbers i'll pick them out in white and then i'll color them in uh, <laughs> and yellow green uh, excellent well, that is what we have been up to, but we are not the only ones that have been busy hobbying away. So we're going to jump over now to what you guys in the Facebook group have been up to. So we'll be back in a second with our Community Edge Highlights. You kids listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides, tell the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint boy. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tube sent you. You might get some extra special. Community Edge Highlights. And we're back, guys. This time, it's going to be all about what you guys, or quite possibly what Mr. Douglas Mission has been up to, because he has been quite prolific recently in posting in the Facebook group, so... Yeah. How, how did you phrase it, Dave? Uh, it's a positive content hose, but it's fantastic. It's fantastic to see somebody getting uh, so many games in, to be able to produce so much uh, and share it with us. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really loving it. When I see a new post come up from uh, Douglas, I uh, look forward to seeing what he's been doing this time. Yeah, I've been getting very jealous with all his recent game night <laughs> posts um, with his, honestly, pretty much... I don't want to say complete Imperial Collection, but it feels like his Crusade Force 
has almost every aspect of Imperial forces represented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, no, it's brilliant. I, I, I love seeing it. And, uh, I think we just all, if anything, we just a touch jealous that we're not getting as many games in, but yep. uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's the dream, isn't it? It is at the moment. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's not too far off. Hopefully we will soon be able to play games again. Yeah, but let's not encourage anybody to go and do that before it's safe. Oh, no, not before it's safe to do so at all. Definitely. Certainly, certainly with my friends, we're planning a little bit of Garden Hammer once once we're allowed to really meet up a couple of people outside. And um, and it's a little bit warmer because mm. it's not quite so warm at the moment. But uh, easy baby steps before we get back to the gaming clubs. But as well as playing uh, games, uh, Douglas has also been busy basically building Cadia, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like, rebuilding well, it, Cadia, even. It's a bit of a refurb job at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fixer-up. It's a... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's been busy with all sorts of different sort of, like, fortifications, terrain pieces and such, with, you know, just defence lines, various sort of, like, 3D-printed, um, like, Imperial gun emplacements, um, bunkers, all sorts. And it looks like he's getting himself ready for some stronghold assault games in the near future. <laughs> yeah, no, there's really, yeah. I, uh, I've i been trying to sort my scenery out a bit during, during lockdown, but I think he's uh, well ahead of where I am. I've been meaning to get a bit more done on my sort of like Death World stuff. Um, I'm hoping I might be able to convert that, uh, that, new Luminef Realm Lord terrain piece into something, make it look a bit sort of um, Eldar Maiden World-ish. But um, it's definitely something that I'm wanting to accomplish sometime soon, assuming that, you know, the Imperium doesn't come and just flatten the place and build all these fortresses everywhere. Yeah, I feel like I should make a Hikashi Guide to the Galaxy joke about the planning permission being in the next system over. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you say the Imperium um, coming and flattening it, do you mean my AdMac? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Got to make space for you... that hyperspace bypass. Yep. That's the point, actually. Do the AdMac have a, an official terrain piece kit yet or not? No, but there is one for the Imperial Knights. I know the Knights have one, which is which, just the... As far as I know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not special, so... Mm. Uh, no, I don't think there is a special AdMech one. Uh, but Ooh, given they, they build all the Imperial stuff, basically all of the Imperial ones are AdMech ones. Arguably. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess they've got the Galvanic Servo Holder kit from Kill Team. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but there's the... an entire Sector Mechanicus like terrain set, right? So Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't so much have a terrain piece as a terrain range. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at this rate, uh, Douglas will have his own terrain range as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but speaking of AdMech, uh, one of the other um, sort of like posters recently in the community group that I wanted to shout out was, um, oh, I apologise, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's... So I think we pronounce his name, and I could be wrong as well, but it's Carl Johan Wallander. That sounds right to me. That sounds like a person's name. Or possibly a um, tech priest, since his <laughs> ad deck looks spectacular. 
Yeah, they they do. They're very nice. It's the ones where they've got all these like um, almost thawed out snow bases. Yeah, yeah, and the the blue robes rather than the red robes, which I think is uh, quite distinctive and and makes them look really nice. And then lots of little touches in the in the force as well. Uh, there's a there's a servo gobbo in there, like um, yes. uh, a servitor, but a goblin, which is is a, a lovely little piece. I believe it's the one from the um, white dwarf. Yeah, absolutely. Model, as it were, it was literally Gromdil done as a, a tech priest, but he's, a, he's got a little servitor, um, gobbo assistant, and yeah, um, Carl's got that here, which looks awesome. Um, and lovely weathering, very similar to what Dan was describing earlier um, in the paint station, guys, and uh, looks like uh, the kind of sponged on weathering that's done really, really well. Um, which is nice to see on the vehicles and and lots of hazard stripes on the shoulders. I'm I'm, I'm going to sucker for the black and yellow hazard stripes, and uh, uh, it's great to see yeah. on some of the uh, shoulder pads of the uh, the uh, Skitari. Yeah, and I mean the other thing that I just want to sort of point out really in his posts because it's not obvious until you take a second look, but the table he's got like the. The bow board is also one of these ones which has been sculpted and um, uh, like textured in the same style as his Admech. So they are an army that's been, you know, made in tandem with his board. So they look at home yeah. together. Yeah, that's a really nice touch. It looks really cool. And I cannot, for the life of me, remember his damn Instagram account, so I'm going to have to shout it out later, because <laughs> I have seen it. Um, and I've seen pictures of his board as a whole, um, and it looks really cool. He's got, like, some burnt-out Admech vehicles on there. The whole thing's covered in this sort of, like, permafrost. And I cannot find him on my Instagram, and it's annoying the hell out of me, but <laughs> when I find it, I will definitely give him a shout-out. Yeah, they're totally cool. worth it. It's It's very good. I think something else that's uh, come up only today as we're recording that I think is worth mentioning is uh, is our own Jake's uh, Hades Breaching Jewel unit uh, that he's done for his Imperial Guard. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, he, he's been working on them for a while now, hasn't he? And uh, yeah. Yeah. the results really show it. Talking yeah, about really weathering. <laughs> Heavily weathered, as they but should be if they've been tunneling along underground. I almost feel like this is more an instance of he's added some miniature to a pile of weathering. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's true. Although that's to demean it, they look absolutely awesome. Yes, not to detract it at all. They look yeah. they look like they are siege drills in use, and they have been digging away. Yeah. And the, the bits of the AGS defense line under, the, under them and all that kind of stuff that just puts them in context and, and makes a nice little diorama, even just on that single model with limited space. Really great work. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Are they? I don't think they're sold with bases, are they? Um, but he's probably added, not because they're yeah. uh, forge world, aren't they? Yeah, he's he's put them on large oval bases with uh, bits of rubble around, uh, lots of rocks, looking like they are doing their job. Yeah, Stateria devoured. <laughs> that is the Instagram account. <laughs> Well done, Tony. So I'm glad your mind is no longer itchy. Uh, thank God for that. Now go devour his content because it is awesome. 
he, it's funny because he's only pretty new to Instagram. He's only got 15 posts, but all of them have this spectacular ad mech and board that go with it. So, yes, go find him on there. Go check him out. Now, back to Jake's diggers. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, they fit in with the rest of his army really well as well. He didn't show them side by side, but from what we've seen before, um, I, I'm confident they look, they'll look great together if we see them together. Yeah, the uh, I think the previous thing he did was the um, uh, in in the group was the uh, Catachin character. Oh, the woman. Oh, right, yeah. Yes, I can't forget her name. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> but, yeah, um, he did a really good job of that. That's nice. But he did he did his um his wonderful little sort of like um gory um yes. blood drops technique on it, didn't he? Because she's he sculpted her to be holding like a severed Chaos Marine head. Yeah, and there's blood everywhere. Yeah, and there's a, a, a gummed up chainsaw full of goop. Yep. And it looks amazing. And I, I swear, he, he says he uses some of his own hair for these things, so he must have a bald patch by now. <laughs> yeah, I can see um, that. So, yeah, I mean, that's some of the sort of like really cool like hobby posts that we've been seeing like models games stuff like that so one last post i want to sort of highlight was actually a um sort of like a a discussion post by a one jared dayton who asked the group what black library books had inspired people's hobby and there was actually a good couple of answers and different takes on how people have read black library novels and how they've inspired either army ideas or paint schemes, or even in some cases, desires to recreate particular, like, you know, forces of renown or characters from the books. Um, And I thought, you know, this was a great example of the kind of posts that are also really great to see in the group. It doesn't always have to be pictures of miniatures or games. It can be like anything, you know, talking points, anything that we like to just share about the hobby and our experiences with it. Yeah, completely agree. I, it's, it's, you know, there's much more to the hobby, especially in developing that kind of passion for the background than just, just sitting here painting and, and chatting like we're doing now. Uh, or even getting out and playing games on the tabletop when we're allowed to. Um, and all that depth of, of knowledge and background and lore that we all love as well worth talking about. So if there's any particular points uh, anybody wants to chat about, I'd love to, to get engaged with that on the Facebook group. Definitely. I mean, I know that like on this particular subject, I've um, often tried to, <laughs> I suppose, almost like um, inspire inspiration with the Black Library stuff that I'm reading at the time. Like if I'm obviously for the longest time, I've been working on, you know, this range of 40k orcs. And as such, whenever I found myself with sometimes to read a Black Library novel, I'd like to, to pick up one that includes orcs in it. Um, and just sort of really just keep myself immersed in the culture of that race or the army to really help inspire some ideas as I'm working on the wider project. Um, so I know I've got a couple of chaos books lined up for when I get around to working on my chaos demons as a project. Have you, um, have you read, uh, uh brutal cunning then? I have not I need to you I should to you should I I uh, listened to the audiobook not so long ago and it was amazing I am thinking 
of picking it up as one of uh, sort of like my first Audible um, books. So it probably will be one I'm going to get around to very soon. Yeah, definitely worth it. Uh, I I've been using Audible myself recently. Um, the first two Black Library books I've picked up on that were Brutal Cunning and uh, The Infinite and the Divine, both of which are excellent. It's funny you describe it as that because um, I have heard very good things about that book. I've also heard it described as um, Orion and Trezan's excellent adventure. Yes, definitely. It's uh, it's it's so good um, to be to go back on topic it nearly made me decide to create a necron army i think i've heard one or two people mention that it's inspired them to really try some exodites um because oh yes that, you know um, so i know that there's exodites in it obviously you know yep. who, who wouldn't love sci-fi laser guns mounted on dinosaurs yeah it's uh it opens strong on that point i'll say that <laughs> um but yeah, and I know there's other um, instances of um, plenty of really cool Black Library stuff can inspire a hobby. I know um, back when I was a bit younger and I was venturing into my local games workshop every weekend, um, one of the display armies they had in the store there was an Ultramarines 4th Company, which was the first time I'd ever seen Ultramarines painted without a yellow slash gold uh, trim. Yes, there um, are other ones. Yes, exactly. And uh, it introduced this idea like, oh, each of the companies actually has a company color and these ultramarines with a green like shoulder um, band or whatever you call it, mm-hmm. sh- shoulder rim, um, they actually looked really nicely done and it, it just made them look... It, I remember thinking at the time, it made them look cool even though they were ultramarines. <laughs> quite an achievement Um, that variety of company colours and and what we see with the the helmet colours for the different uh, squads in Blood Angels and all that kind of variety of livery uh, is kind of what prompted me to do something slightly different with my Rainbow Warriors than than the normal colour schemes as well and I I love all that kind of stuff too and uh, that all came from seeing exactly that same kind of thing the armies in the stores and stuff as a kid yeah and this particular army was inspired by the series of um, novels around Uriel Ventress and right. the fourth company, as he he was the captain of it at the time, as it were. Um, so I know that it was a, a Black Library-inspired army. Um, that same store also had a, um, a staff member that had an Iron Warriors army that was based around the... I think it was like the Storm of Iron series or whatever it was, but basically the Iron Warrior series of books around the same sort of time period um and i know he'd convert a couple of the characters for that and even made a perturabo conversion at the time and this is you know you're talking 10 15 years prior to like gulliman in 40k mm-hmm. but yeah like there's all good examples of the sort of things that can be inspired in your hobby from materials such as Black Library. And I just thought it was a really good thread and I really enjoyed reading it. And yep. um, I'd love to see more stuff like that in the Facebook group. So I think I'll probably be looking to pose some interesting questions and start some debates myself. Yeah, thanks for that one, Jared. It's really good. It was.
Um, so yeah, that's what all you wonderful folks have been up to. And uh, yeah, I think we're we're basically about an hour in now, and we've just had a great time chatting hobby, really. <laughs> uh, so maybe for those listeners that have stuck in there, uh, which to be honest, I get the impression is most people like the the, the podcast um statistics that i see are often really encouraging in terms of like completion <laughs> um i feel that those that do listen are you know quite dedicated followers of the show and uh, i appreciate it so much it's because they have to put the paintbrush down to turn us off uh, to <laughs> oh, it's too much effort to turn us off so they <laughs> yeah. might as well let us ramble until we come to a natural conclusion <laughs> Fair enough. Well, for you folks who are busy painting and cannot reach for the uh, pause button, you'll be hearing our spotlight topic coming up right now. Also, straight in your back. <laughs> <laughs> Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we are back with tonight's spotlight topic, Flashpoint Charadon. So this is the latest in the Flashpoint series in White Dwarf, which they've kind of been going all in on this. Um, and it has actually been for the entirety of the last six months, every issue of White Dwarf has had a 40k flashpoint in it. And in fact, the most recent issues have actually had the start of the Age of Sigma flashpoints in them as well. So they, it looks like this is becoming a pretty supported format of White Dwarf rules. Um, it's also one of the reasons why uh, I'm quite pleased to now actually have a subscription to it. And my latest <laughs> issue is the first of my subscription issues with the fancy full art cover. Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah, so Flashpoint Charadon is a so far, three issues across issues 460, 461, and 462. Um, and funnily enough, this one doesn't specify that this is all of them. Um, so whereas the previous Flashpoint Agavon was distinctly three parts over three issues, this one is almost kind of like a, a mixed bag of theatres of war and relics and some other crusade bits. But all of it is just sort of pick and choose, whatever you fancy using. Um, and to that end, they could easily be a fourth instalment in this or more. I don't know. And um, we'll have to see. Um, so. Flashpoint Charadon is a series of theatres of wars that are based in and around the different um, systems in the Charadon sector. And all this is to coincide with the new 
uh, Book of Rust that's releasing, it's on pre-order now, I believe, and is uh, releasing sort of next week, which focuses around the Death Guard invasion of Fortral Metallica. So this sort of generally covers areas in that area of space and the wider conflict between the Imperium as a whole, mostly the Admech, and their conflicts with Death Guard and wider Chaos Forces. And sprinkled on top of that as well, there are various Drukari real space raids that are also hounding both sides of the conflict, and no doubt probably representatives of most other races involved somewhere. I'm sure a couple of those planets are probably infected with orcs. Some of them probably have uh, some high fleet tendrils probing at them. I'm sure you can go with any excuse really for any army to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, just like all the other things that we look at. Uh, whilst these are set, uh, you know, the flashpoints are very much intended to be a, a specific conflict in a particular moment in time. Uh, there are sets of rules that you can use in, in different places and uh, bring in your own army there. You could choose to recreate these as, as historical battles, uh, if that's the right term for 40k, um, or, or you can just use them as, yeah, putting your force into this battle zone and, and it's got the same um, characteristics as, as the historical battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and to that end... I've taken all of the brand new rules across all three of these issues and I've just sort of grouped them together and we're going to examine a couple of them which are particularly interesting or exciting. So, basically, each issue features three theatres of war that you can use for any of your you know, games of 40k um, and in particular for any Crusade games you fancy playing so you can just apply these as an extra their rules to represent the environment that you're playing your mission in. Um, and each one of these theatres of wars, each one of these theatres of war also has a unique crusade relic or battle trait which can be earned by a unit in the winning army for that game. So if, for example, you play a game um in the Ocarium City Ruins and if you win it, if you have a unit that would gain a Crusade relic as a result of that victory, you could choose to take the unique relic from that theatre of war instead of the regular or any regular relic you could otherwise take. Does that make That's, sense? It's cool. I like it. It is. And yeah. it's a really nice expansion to uh, to you know that you know narrative battles that we all want to get out and play. I like how it's an extra little layer to Theatres of War. It's almost an incentive because, say, um, one of you um, playing the game would really like to try and earn a particular relic, um, such as the uh, Martyr's Rest Warrior's Bones relic. So say you, you're, you're running a crusade of um, Sisters of Battle. You might be really interested in wanting to get hold of you know these bones of a... Um, Imperial Martyr, just because it's probably more interest to you as a Crusade Relic than an STC or something. Yeah. You know, so you, you then have an incentive to go play with the Martyr's Rest Theatre of War because you've got a goal to actually try and win a battle in that environment to get the Crusade reward specific to it. Yeah, it's also nice because it's a little bit of extra 
content for for say the people who don't have a a new codex yet and don't have loads of big crusade rules in them that is another good point actually just another little extra addition you can add to your Mm. collection if required if you're just going off the rule book you can put a bit of extra spice in your crusade with one of these they are all still very interesting and unique environments and i think speaks very highly of how varied the Warhammer 40k setting is. You know, like the 40k universe is a pretty wild and varied place. I mean, we've been over a lot of different theatres of war now on this podcast over the in the last almost two years. And yeah. I don't think there's been a lot of repetition, you know, in these sort of environments yet. So of the um, the nine different theatres of war we have in these issues, I've basically just written a very brief keyword explanation of what that theatre of war is. And from that, uh, I'm going to ask the two of you to pick some of the most interesting sounding ones, and then we'll go over in a bit more detail. So we have um, the Ocarium City Ruins which is a cityscape featuring biological warfare. The Martyr's Rest Mausoleum District, which is a cityscape that's basically either haunted or blessed by Holy Spirits, depending on which particular philosophical or heretical bend you take. (laughs) There is the Dyrox Reach Desert Badlands, which is a desert. Um, the Heliotia Penal Compound, which is a fortified cityscape featuring automated defences. The St. Bartolf's Throne Manufactoria, which is an industrial um, active manufactorum. The Borfries Salt Plains, which is a desert but it's a dried up ocean seabed. The plains of Denfreya, that's it, yeah, the plains of Denfreya, which is a hostile environment desert. The wheel of Fetu. Fetu? Yeah. Fatu. I, I think there's a game in this. We should just make lists like this uh, on a regular basis, Dan, and get Tony to yeah, read them. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> the last one's called the Emperor's Wrath. If you're struggling with oh, <laughs> you take you take the easy one. <laughs> well, just to clarify, then, yeah, the Wheel of Fear Two is an asteroid facility or a um, it's like a pirate space harbor, um, and the Emperor's Wrath is a space station infested with the zombie plague. So take your picks. Why don't we start with Dan? Hi. Uh, I, well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. There is. Uh, working down from the top, uh, let's talk about the Martyr's Rest Mausoleum District. No problem. Um, Dave, would you care to take us through it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the Martyr's Rest Mausoleum District is... Uh, so just to read out the, the blurb on it. Uh, not every soul of those buried in the mausoleums rests easy. 
Terrified screams and dying cries continue to cluster Vox communications of those who enter the district. Even those at peace cause problems in their own way. The sanctified blessings on tombs affect the psychic powers of those nearby. So there's very much a, a sort of, um, this sort of, we've seen it several times uh, in the things that we've reviewed around other war zones for um, the, the psychic effects uh, that, mm. that can happen uh, and, and the modification here. So every one of these has sort of an ability uh, that, uh, that happens. Um, so the, when you're flighting in the, the Martyrs Rest Mausoleum District, there's a number of several rules of fly, uh, but they, they do vary as well. So there's these three tables um, and, and you roll on each of the tables to determine which of the three applies. So, um, I believe so in this case, the first two tables are a D3 that apply for the whole game. And then the third one is a D6 table per round. Yeah, that's right. So, the, so in this case, Spirits of the Dead, before the battle, after determining who the attacker and defender will be, the attacker rolls 1d3 and consults the table below to determine the state right. of the entombed souls. Every <laughs> unit on the battlefield gains the corresponding ability. So that that means that every every unit on the battlefield, uh, attacker and defender, uh, would, gets this. Yeah, would either be subtracting one from the leadership characteristics and models in this unit, yeah. If this unit has destroyed any enemy units, add one to the leadership character models of this unit instead. So basically, you're being hounded by the dead unless you kill things, in which case um, you're actually encouraged by the dead. <laughs> right, I get it. Yeah, I think I'd misunderstood that before. Yeah, there's like a voice oh. whispering in your ear going, kill them, kill them all. <laughs> and if you do, then um, you'll probably receive some kind of spectral applause. <laughs> well, alternatively, if the attacker rolls a three, the result is peaceful spirits. Add one to the leadership characteristics of the model in this unit. If the unit's destroyed any units, subtract one. So the inverse, uh, basically. So yes. Don't kill people. So you, don't kill people. Yeah, you've got a choir of heavenly voices, and then if you actually end up slaughtering things, they all turn on you and like, why? Why do you torment us so? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a second special rule in effect. So again, the attacker rolls a d3 uh, and looks mm. at the table there. And every this, minute. Yeah, so this is sanctified blessings, yeah. um, and this is uh, this affects terrain. Yeah, so every area terrain feature on the battlefield gains the corresponding ability. Yeah, so if you roll a one, it's inscribed with benedictions. Add one to the deny which test taken for units within the terrain feature. So um, you know, uh, divine protection, defensive blessings. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, well, the second one's called Divine Benevolence, actually. Uh, each time a unit within the terrain feature would lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound. Well, a D4 and a 4 plus, that wound is not lost. A D4? A D6, you mean? A D6, yeah, we don't use D4s in there. Not if you're trying to get a 4 okay, plus. So... <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> so you roll a D6 and you're trying to get a 4 plus. Uh, and that, that prevents the loss of a mortal wound, uh, which is uh, an interesting ability, definitely. And um, and if you roll a three, uh, the quieting, quietening consecration. Each time a priest model within this terrain feature rolls for their priest ability. So uh, if it's a chaplain's litany or a care space marine's uh, uh, prayers, uh, add one to that roll. Yeah, that's very cool because I thought this was really interesting because it's a... A special like universal rule tied to priests 
which is something I've not really seen before yet in ninth edition. So yeah, I think we've we've seen the priest keyword quite a lot. On, on well, we've seen season. priests, like you say, they, it was like the apostles yeah. and chaplains and the one, the actual imperial missionaries and stuff in the Sisters yeah. of Battle. They are priests, but to see something that's like a non-army specific rule that applies yeah. to all priests, I think, is uh, quite a new thing. So, it, interesting, we get two different rules there. One that applies to all units, uh, one that applies to all terrain features, but definitely makes it feel mm. like the, the kind of mausoleum that you're fighting in. And then, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because it, it's essentially the rules for the spirits that are present in the mausoleum and how the buildings of the mausoleum have been um, like uh, inscribed or... Um, blessed or whatever so yeah. I like how this could easily be something on like uh, a demon world or possibly like um, a grave world where it's actually all um, shrines to chaos and stuff and these could be malevolent spirits that are yeah. um, fighting throughout all these catacombs inscribed with blessings to that gods and so on yeah, I think some of these, uh, all of these nine, uh, as I've read to them, do do so. If you're a terrain builder, they can certainly inspire you. So then um, there's a third rule as well that applies. Um, so at the start of each battle round, you roll a d6, definitely a d6 this time. Consult <laughs> the uh, six entry table uh, to see what effect the voices of the dead have on the communication networks of the two armies. Um, in, and it lasts just that one round. So. On a one, resonance arms add three inches to the range of all units or visibilities, up to a maximum of nine inches. So uh, uh, that's, that's an interesting one. Prayers have been further for all yep. to hear. Or everybody's more inspired by that banner, or whatever it happens to be. If you roll a two, it's uh, screaming dissonance. Subtract three from the range of all units or visibilities to a minimum of three, so the, the inverse. But it doesn't get rid of them completely. It only goes down to a minimum of three inches. Roll of three gives you knowledge of the dead. The first time each player uses a command reroll strategy in this battle round, it costs no CP. Mm. So, uh, Wisdom of the very ancients. So ancient they're <laughs> dead. Indeed. Uh, if you roll a four, it's uh, conflicting insanity. Uh, the can command reroll stratagem cannot be used. Even that's the stratum I most commonly use, and I know not everybody likes that. I uh, that's a concerning one for me. I, I have to I have to admit, I, the only thing with this is the name confuses me because conflicting insanity. I, I'd like to know what the rule is for synergistic insanity. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's mad boys and orcs. I don't think that's yep. the subject. Ah. That. <laughs> odd boys and odd boys. Um, if you roll a five, emboldening tales add one to combat attrition tests. And if you roll a six, it's undermining fears subtract one from combat attrition tests. Mm-hmm. Cool. So it's interesting that that particular d6 table that is changing every turn. So yeah. you're going to yeah. get that's where your in game variance is going to come from, whereas your first two rolls are game to game variance. Um, and it's interesting to see this theme of basically improving or enhancing um, psychic protection more than anything. 
um, and then they sort of messing around with morale um, and leadership. So it's a uh, it's going to be an interesting psychological experience fighting on a mausoleum world or mausoleum district. It's yeah. very spooky. Very spooky indeed. Would be good for a uh, a Halloween game, perhaps. Ooh, yes, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. That or the um, the plague zom- uh, yeah, the zombie plague space station. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a nice idea. Well, it's it's a nice uh, kind of concept for a, a battle zone that the effects are not just physical, like slowing your troops or taking damage or whatever. Yes, it's not necessarily that it's the environment or the you know the war front and the weapons of the enemy that are, um the the hazard this is actually the the um trepidation of the spirit that's yeah. been represented i mean i think that's uh that's definitely something that kind of comes across quite heavily in in most 40k sort of law isn't it but it it but less some, so on the tabletop yeah it sometimes gets forgotten about a little bit uh so mm. uh, it's quite cool to see a yeah, in, in rules terms, yeah. it increases the friction for the player. So friction's a concept where you, you you don't always get to do exactly what you want to do, which we we don't always have a lot of in 40k, and you see you see a lot more in other games. But they, these rules, you know, they 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 just make it not quite as easy to do uh, exactly what you'd like to do mm. most of the time. Yeah, typically the only standard variance is the dice themselves there's not yeah. much beyond the dice rolls that's beyond your control so it's nice to see some stuff like this that adds to that element of um interference i guess um and then if you are able to brave the haunted mausoleum and you are able to win your game well you don't have to win a game really it's, uh, oh no yes yes you do <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, I just read. So, this is our first example of getting a crusade relic if you win in this battle zone. So, it says, winning units from your army gains a crusade relic. If you have just won a battle on one of these theatres of war, you can instead select the relevant relic from the list below. All usual rules for selecting crusade relics, as described in our 40,000 core rulebook, apply. So, artificer relics. A character model can be given one of the following artificer relics instead of one of those presented in the core rulebook. And if you succeed at the Martyr's Rest Mausoleum, then you can gain the Warrior's Bones relic. (laughs) These bones belong to a mighty warrior, and a portion of their spirit somehow still resonates within them, aiding the bearer in combat with ancient battle wisdom. Once per turn... When the bearer makes an attack, you can re-roll the hit roll, the wound roll, or the damage roll. If you do, add one to that roll. Ooh. So it's basically a once per turn command re-roll almost, but it's not just re-rolled, it's re-rolled plus one. It's uh, super death skulls. Yeah, there's a reason that skull is on the front of the... On the front of the shield in the, uh, yeah. the new box here, right? Does that mean my death skulls get to loot an actual dead skull and yes. then he's dead lucky? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would think so. Ah, uh, yeah, that would that would be fun. <laughs> Although it feels a bit weird if you're fighting to defend, and then you go, "Yes, we successfully defended this. We're going to loot some of these bones now." Well, maybe you were defending it from being defiled, but like you're deep in enemy territory, so. 
if you don't take it with you right now, it is inevitably going to get defiled. You've just fought your way there to get to it before the enemy does at that moment in time. I mean, stray shots could go break open some tomb somewhere. Uh, you know, bones just oh, lying no. around. You might as well take them. It's better <laughs> than just leaving them there, right? Oh, <laughs> no. No need to cry over spilt bones. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very 40k relic, isn't it? Just, it is. just some guy's bones. Love them. So, we have had Haunted slash Holy City. Uh, Dave, which of our selection of interesting 40 40k locales would you like to visit next? Uh, what about the uh, both of the assault planes? Yes, I really like this one. So this is the dried up seabed. So you would probably set up your board in a sort of desert style configuration, but with the idea that this used to be the bottom of an ocean, right, the sea floor, and now that all that water is either dried up, been possibly hauled away by the Mechanicum or just otherwise um, lost to the various shenanigans that can happen (laughs) to any planet in the uh, 40k universe. So, this is the Borfrias Salt Plains. Portions of Borfrias's surface were given up to a were given up to dried up seabeds where once in history vast oceans ah. existed. These great bodies of water have long since dried up, leaving enormous salt flats. These areas were mined heavily by the world's populace. Um, but one of the things which becomes apparent when we go over these rules is that one of the really cool features of this sort of board and environment is you want to include lots of dead skeletons. But in particular, like large Leviathan-esque style skeletons, the things that are going to be dwarfing your space marines. They're going to be, so you, you know... you thinking something like the Create Dragon skeleton from the dunes of Tatooine? Yes, that sort of thing. You know, great sandworms or ocean worms, I guess. Whales, you know, aquatic dinosaur types, all the rest of it. Anything where space marines are going to be using rib cages as, you know, defensive structures. <laughs> Um, these you know vast ocean creatures of eons past whose remains now litter the salt fields. Um, so if playing using this feature of war, we recommend that the battlefield is fairly flat with few hills or tall terrain features. Instead, you're just going to have lots of piles of bones. Um, when fighting a battle in the Barfrost salt plains, the following rules apply. Even footing. Players can re-roll advance rolls made for units from their armies, excluding units that can fly, that do not contain models with a save characteristic of free or better. Um, models do not suffer the penalty to hit rolls incurred for firing assault weapons in the same turn that their unit has advanced. So basically, because you're more or less fighting on a sandy car park, you know, you're just a flat open surface for most of it. You, you can you're going to be able to sprint full speed. You're going to be able to keep your weapon held level while advancing and firing. So unless you've been slowed down by the bulk of power armor or similar, you're probably going to be able to uh, just sprint about a bit more easily. 
It reminds me a little bit of what they used to say about uh, the desert warfare in North Africa in World War Two, that it was a pure kind of war, um, and you weren't complicated by uh, anything like uh, the difficulties of uh, terrain and cities and things. So, uh, a similar flavour. A very salty flavour. <laughs> um, so, in addition to this, you also have rules for the bone fields. The dried seabeds of the Borfrian salt plains were littered with the bleached bones of long-dead sea monsters. The nature of many of these creatures was strange indeed, and their bones retain elements of this retain elements of this even centuries after the creature's death. Before the battle, after determining who the attacker and defender will be, starting with the defender, players alternate placing bone field markers on the battlefield one at a time. Uh, until each has placed three bonefield markers, each bonefield marker cannot be placed within six inches of any battlefield edge or in 12 of another bonefield marker. So almost typical objective marker style deployment. But I also think these would make brilliant little um, modeling opportunities, be it yep. a pile of bones or be it some particularly fancy um, monstrous skull or similar. <laughs> Uh, the attacker rolls 1d6 for each bonefield marker on the battlefield and consults the table below to see what ability that bonefield has for the battle. Alternatively, if both players agree, the attacker can roll 1d6 and the corresponding ability applies to every bonefield marker on the battlefield. So I think that's an interesting choice that they've you know presented there where you can either go for six sort of randomised abilities across all of them or just one ability that applies to all. Yeah, that that was different from what we saw in the last uh, uh, battle zone. I don't know what the right word is. Uh, uh, theater of war, battle zone, it's pretty yeah. interchangeable. Where where the, you rolled for it and it applied to all uh, area terrain pieces, didn't it? So if you bear that in mind as we uh, look at this D6 table. So if you roll a 1 then that particular bone field, or all of them, depending, um, has psychic power-infused skeletons. While a psychic unit is within three inches of this bone field marker, each time that unit attempts to manifest the psychic power smite, add two to the psychic test, and each time that unit suffers perils of the warp, which they'll be more than likely doing because of the plus two to casting, <laughs> uh, it suffers one mortal wound instead of d3. So it is kind of like a psychic lightning rod. It's going to yeah. siphon off the worst effects of the perils. You only goes for one mortal wound. On a free, it will be a fused ribcage. So aura, while an infantry unit is within three inches of this burnfield marker, if every model in that unit has a wounds characteristic of one, so no space marines. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Each time a ranged attack is made against that unit, it is treated as having the benefits of light cover against that attack. So the fact that it's a a free inch aura around this marker means that it's kind of acting like a pseudo area terrain piece. Yeah. But you know, that's quite nice. So it's a, a large enough and solid enough skeleton you can sort of physically hide behind it. Interesting. Um, on a fall, it has uh, this bone field marker has explosive fragments. Um, <laughs> while a unit is within three inches of this bone field marker, each time that unit is selected as the target of a ranged attack, an unmodified hit roll of a six scores one additional hit. Now, 
theoretically, I think that's meant to represent the fact that the you know weapons are coming under fire from are causing the skeleton around them to explode or drop sharp bits on them or whatever, just basically be hazardous for being in it or near it. Yeah, that could be fun. Mm-hmm. And if explosive fragments weren't enough, you could roll a five and instead end up with a bone shard floor. <laughs> While a unit is in three inches of this bone field marker, each time that unit is selected to fall back, roll 1d6. On a 1 to 3, that unit cannot fall back and must remain stationary instead. Because you're basically <laughs> walking on a field of caltrops and you can't possibly hastily retreat back from an assaulting enemy over it. Because it ain't gonna go well for you. Caltrops are basically d4s again. This yeah. is turning into yep. d4s. <laughs> <laughs> the classic uh, d4. And then if you somehow manage to roll a 6 on that classic d4, you've instead ended up with a forest of bones. While a unit is in three inches of, within three inches of this marker, each time that unit declares a charge, the targets of that charge cannot set to defend or fire overwatch. Hmm. Uh, so that's one unit in three inches of marker. Each time that unit declares a charge, targets of that charge. Okay, so that's interesting. So yep. that basically that's... sounds like you're sort of like emerging from the cover of these yeah. um, skeletons and bone fields. So the enemy don't get chance to set to defend or fire overwatch at you because you're emerging from behind the yeah. you know, remains of this ancient sea monster. Yeah. Hiding that's in the elephant graveyard. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty neat uh, set of different terrain effects that um uh, certainly when you've got those those you know a number of those uh, large rib cages or whatever scattered about the battlefield they they'll they'll give a different flavor to how that works i think possibly for ease of use it might be good to try it out with just the one effect that applies to all the markers and if you become a bit more practiced with it and know them all then you can start having variants from marker to marker yeah um, i can see why they put that option in there yes it's almost like there's um, a beginner and experience level to this particular theater of war. Um, and then there is a stratagem that you can also use if you're playing in this theater, but this one I believe only really takes effect if you are using varied effects per marker. So this is attuned corpses. Some species of sea creatures that once inhabited here were psychically attuned to others of their family groups. Elements of this power still linger within the remains and can be exploited by savvy forces. Use a stratagem in your command phase. Select two bonefield markers on the battlefield. Until the start of your next command phase, units within three inches of either of those markers count as within range of each other's aura abilities. So basically, both those markers count as having both abilities of those two markers. That's cool. It is cool. But like I say, it's only really applicable if those markers have different abilities and you're not just using a blanket rule for all of them. Okay. And then finally, when playing a game using this theatre of war, both players have access to the following action. Destroy the remains. The skeletons (laughs) of the dead creatures proved to be a boon for forces operating on the salt plains and many commanders ordered their destruction. Units from your army can attempt the following action. At the start of your charge phase, any number of units from your army can start to perform this action. 
each must be in range of a different bone field marker. This action is completed at the end of the turn. When this action is completed, the bone field marker is destroyed. Remove it from the battlefield. I love how it says at the start of your charge phase, so basically you are charging the pile of bones. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're not having enough fun attacking the enemy, you can start attacking the scenery. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Perhaps we it, could get out the deforestation devices from the last episode. <laughs> bones for the bone god. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you're finding that you know those explosive fragments are killing too many of your guardsmen, you can order them to tear down that goddamn skeleton. Nice. <laughs> or if the psychically infused one is causing your psychers' heads to explode too much, then uh, after getting the commissar out to explode the heads himself, you can tear down that goddamn skeleton. I'm I'm sensing a very bony theme to these. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a good point, actually. Yes, what's our relic associated with this one? Um, so this is <laughs> so it's a sea dragon tooth. Is is it so... some magic bones? It's a magic bone. Awesome. <laughs> sea dragon tooth. Oh. Power of this dead sea dragon was such that its teeth still remain. That its teeth still retain a portion of the creature's strength and are no less sharp than they were in the monster's life. This relic cannot be given to a vehicle model. Sure. Each time the bearer fights, if it made a charge move or performed a heroic intervention this turn, then until that fight is resolved, each time it makes a melee attack, an unmodified hit roll of 5+, plus scores one additional hit. Oh. So, so it gives it a special sword, basically, right? Yeah, I think that's basically... Yeah, a sea dragon sword, almost, made out of this, you know, horrible sea monster's tooth that's psychically that, charged. Yeah, I can see that working very well for, you know, a, a space marine character, uh, an orc hero, um, you know, even an elder um, would work really well. It's a shame I can't give it to my whirlwind. I always love it when I try and, <laughs> and, try and combat. So well, it, it sounds to me you want to have an, an orc weird boy with the scorched git bones relic <laughs> and then you want to play this scenario and win this one and get that and you play the other uh, the other mission or the other um battle zone to get the uh the relic bones from that and just collect all the bones in your that's your crusade goal collect all the bones be be the big bone boss yes collect yeah, all the I magic could... bones <laughs> that that is a right crusade goal for like a snake bite war boss collect all the magic bones mm. Yes, I think we we might be have an idea when the Orc Codex comes out. Then <laughs> we'll scry the bones, will we? <laughs> right. Uh, so then, so we've had our our haunted mausoleum of bones. We've had our dried ocean seabed of bones. Uh, Dan, pick a new bone related <laughs> location. A bone related location. I don't uh, know if there is one or not, but. Well, I mean, I don't know about bones, but the um, on the spooky th- uh, spooky theme at the Emperor's Wrath space station sounds uh, full of spooky things. Zombie plague it is. <laughs> so, the Emperor's Wrath space station. Uh, Dave, would you like to read this one for us? The Emperor's Wrath. So the Emperor's Wrath was a huge space fortress designed to protect the Rodeo system from invasion. 
Like many other locations in Rodeo, it was not immune to infighting. This resulted in many dead, which rose again when the effects of typhus and sorcery spread to the Charidon sector. Um, so if there's a designer's note here as well, that says if you're using this theater of war, we recommend the battlefield is populated largely with industrial structure, armored containers, fuel pipe, terrain features, and etc., to represent the space fortress. So although it is a space fortress, it gives you uh, good uh, guidance about the kind of normal terrain that we can use for that. I think industrial space station sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there are special rules, just as we've been for the other one. So the first one is corpse piles. Um, <laughs> uh, and the reason given is in the rodeo system, the dead became the, en became the enemy and were ever-present threat. So at the start of battle, all objective markers are unburned corpse piles. Definitely a modeling opportunity. Uh, when a corpse pile is unburned, it has the following abilities. So as an aura called Cautious Advance, while the unit was in six inches of an objective marker, at the start of the fight phase, that unit does not count as having made a charge move or heroic intervention this turn. Because you're only very cautiously charging in because you're trying to make sure there isn't about to be a zombie jump on you from said pile of corpses. Absolutely. Can't turn your back on it for too long. Yeah. It has a... Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, zombie movies are full of jump scares, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it has a second order ability called Eyes on a Swivel. When a unit is within six inches of the subjective marker, each time modeling that unit makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit not within six inches of the subjective marker, subtracts one from that hit roll. They're a bit distracted, keep an eye out yeah. for those jump scares. Again, mm -hmm. Yeah, keeping, keeping an eye over your shoulder as you're trying to fire on the enemy in the distance. And then a third aura. Hands of the Dead. While a unit was in six inches of this objective marker, each team that unit is selected as the target of an attack after the attacking unit has made its attacks. If any models in the target unit were destroyed as a result of those attacks, roll 1d6 for each of those destroyed models. For each six, the target unit suffers a mortal wound. Ooh. Ooh, so that to me reads as the zombie has jump-scared you and your squad yes. mates and uh, has now dragged you into the corpse pile. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, interesting the difference in the objectives markers there. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you don't actually place these markers as part of the theatre of war effects. This is just whatever mission you're playing, yeah. the objective markers are these corpse piles. I like which, that. Yeah, I, I mean, when you think about some of the missions that also like have the objective markers that move around a bit, or roam, <laughs> or the ones that maybe certain ones like disappear or spawn in mid-game there's some interesting stuff that could be going can we, on there. Uh, can we briefly t uh, think about playing the crusade mission the ritual uh with that particular Ooh, particular yes. objective <laughs> yeah. oh yeah trying to conduct your ritual around uh, said corpse pile <laughs> <laughs> nice okay so there is uh, an action that can be done in this uh zone so uh and the action is called burn the dead uh, and any army can attempt it um at the start of your movement phase any number of units from your army can start to perform this action include excluding beast and swarm units each must be in range of a different unburned corpse pile this action is completed at the end of the turn when this action is completed that corpse pile is considered burned uh, which i believe just removes all those other abilities because yeah. That was all objective markers are unburned oh. corpse piles. And while That's they are right. unburned, they have those abilities. 
So no. it works very well with Blood Angels scrolling through with their, their flamers everywhere. I mean, whilst all it does is remove the aura abilities of the objective marker, I possibly think it could be fun to also physically remove the marker, depending on the mission mm. you're playing, if it's not going to be um, completely detrimental to the ability to continue playing the game. It could be interesting to add that level of risk reward. Do you want to um, keep the objective as probably providing progressive victory points, but risk the zombies clawing at you, or do you simply burn it up to not be harmed, but then you can't score any more progressive points off that objective because it's gone? I think that could be an interesting like house rule to apply to this scenario if it felt appropriate. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. Uh... Uh, that would be an interesting thing to discuss with your opponent before and make, make a, a nice variance to... to I mean, for course. example, you wouldn't want to burn the ritual corpse pile to the point of not existing, otherwise you're not going to be able to complete the ritual. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so, true. So maybe in that case you do just, you know, get the dead to lie still until the ritual's finished at least. <laughs> <laughs> So the other thing that's happening in this uh, this state of war is uh, weapons caches because there's been so much fighting. There's various arms caches that are being stolen or hidden away and littered around the battlefield. So before the battle, after determining when the, who the attacker and defender will be, the attacker rolls one d three and consults the table below to determine what time of stolen equipment has been stored away in the weapons caches hidden across the battlefield. Uh, yes. So this is. If you complete the action on a four plus, you get to roll on this table. And when you roll on the results, there's an option for ranged weapons and melee, and you pick whether you want the ranged weapon bonus for that unit or the melee right. bonus for that unit. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if you roll a one, you can either choose between high end optics, add in six inch to the range characteristics of rapid fire and heavy weapons, or if you roll, if you choose melee, it stims. So every time a model in the is destroyed by a melee attack made by an enemy model. Don't remove the destroyed model. It can, after the attacking model's units finish making its attack, make one attack with one of its melee weapons. After resolving this attack, the destroyed model is then removed. So, uh, it turns mini go them trick. all into Wolfen. Uh, <laughs> Wolfen, yeah. I've gone to mini go trick, but uh, I guess maybe I've played more Age of Sigma. <laughs> or maybe is Gotrick just a mini Wolfen? Uh, too deep for, for this time. <laughs> Um, if you if you roll a two on this equipment table, uh, you can have recoil vampers, which um, uh, when you make a ranged attack in the unit, uh, an unmodified wound roll of six improves the AP minus one. Or on melee stabilizer grips, this uh, each time the unit makes an attack, an unmodified wound roll of six improves the AP by two. Um, or on a three, you got thermic sighting modules. Each model in the unit makes a range attack. The target does not receive the benefits of light cover against the attack. Or if you choose melee, breaching gear. Each time a model in this unit makes a melee attack, the target does not receive the benefits of heavy cover against that attack. See, this scenario to me just has this odd feeling of a sort of like indie survival video game because now we've got like zombie Our apocalypse works. and moon crates. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, you don't get them automatically. You have to take an action. So at the start of your movement phase, any infantry, cavalry, or biker unit from your army can perform this action. You must be holding with a different piece of area terrain that's not yet been searched. 
uh, and the action completes the end of the phase as usual. When the action is completed, the piece of area turn is considered search on a D6 of four plus, uh, the unit performing the action has found the weapon class. And that's when you select the melee, not a ranged option. Mm -hmm. and, um, the, until the end of the battle, that unit gains the selected abilities. So it, it really is a power-up, right? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a loot box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See whether you've got uh, any green or purple gear. <laughs> so it's a, it's a survival horror mission, and there is crafting components. Uh, yeah, indeed. And then the third special rule is uh, a growing tide of zombies that are probably encircling you and forcing all your army to the center point for a final battle. Okay. <laughs> so the, the last rule that applies to um, this scenario is the dead rise. Warriors slain in the fighting rise from the dead, possessed of all manner of terrible plagues. They are a terrifying enemy to face. At the start of the battle round, calculate the total number of destroyed units from both players' armies and check the table below to see what effect the Awakening Dead have for the battle round. If the combined total is 0 to 2 units, then it is the moment of death and there are no effects yet. If it is a total of 3 to 4 units, then the stirrings of the dead have begun. Each time a moral... A morale... <laughs> Each time a morale test is taken, roll one additional d6 and discard the lowest. If there have been five to six total units destroyed, it is the darkness of night. Each time a morale test is taken, roll additional d6, discard the lowest. And each time a test is failed, two models flee instead of one. And if there have been seven or more units destroyed across both armies, which is not that large a number to say it's mm. both armies... No. Then it is the end of it all. Each time a morale test is taken, roll additional dice, discard the lowest. Each time a test is failed, two models flee instead of one, and subtract one from combat attrition rolls. So additional models are fleeing on ones and twos, or ones, twos, and threes if they're at 50% strength. Yeah. I think the only thing that surprises me about this table is it doesn't scale with the size of the battle. I would have kind of expected something like this to... I mean, those numbers... I guess I could see that. Like, you know, if you were, say, playing an onslaught game or whatever, maybe just add two to each of those brackets. But I suppose if there's more people there, then that's more dead that are going to be accumulating quicker. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it, it would seem that, uh, you know, um, a 25 power level game against a 75 power level game... You're going to get those effects much more quickly in the 75 mm. power level. Well, maybe if you take this as a baseline for strike force and incursion, and if you're playing combat patrol, you minus one or possibly two from the tally, and if you're playing onslaught, you add one to the tally amount, maybe, mm. or the the brackets of the tally rather than the actual. Definitely something that you can discuss with your opponents and and try and make it right for the battle you're playing. I mean, you could just start on seven. Just be like, they're already here. There's already lots yeah. of dead. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny how it's you know, corpse piles of the dead that are stirring to life, and everyone's uh, scattering to try and uncover the loot boxes uh, and get ready for the inevitable zombie apocalypse that is slowly rising around them. Nice. But if you are successful in this, this, this theatre of battle, uh, you this time you can choose a, a particular battle trait. Oh. So for for the Emperor's Wrath, uh, you are resolute of spirit. Once per battle, 
the first time this unit fails a morale test, the test is automatically passed instead. You've uh, gained that willpower for having gone through hell. Mm. So, uh, the magical bones in this case are your own. Uh, <laughs> the magical bones were the, the friendships we made along the way. <laughs> or possibly the friends we had to put down along the way. Well, there's your podcast subtitle right there. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think, funnily enough, we've actually covered one different theatre of war per issue of White Dwarf there. It's almost like um, we planned it. Almost like we planned it. If we were that good. <laughs> but as we said, there's, you know, there's another six we haven't even talked about tonight, and they yeah. all, they're all equally fancy, so listed them off at the, the start of this section of the show, and they all sound like very interesting places to play a game. Uh, and they all come with their own unique battle trait or relic if you win the game. Um, and yeah, for all we know, there might even be a fourth installment of this Flashpoint um, yet to come in a future show of White Dwarf. So we might yet revisit some of the ones we've not talked about tonight. Hmm. Um, and in addition to that, this is all a subset of rules that can actually be played apparently in combination with the Book of Rust and everything else is going to be coming out in that very, very soon. So we might even be referencing back to this Flashpoint when we review that in the near future. Um, yeah. I mean, they all seem fairly easy to slot into place with pretty much everything. So, Yeah, and I think it's funny how... One, there's a surprising amount of bones involved, but two, yeah. all of these do feel like they've got that sort of like plague war, death guard, zombie vibe to them. You know, there's a lot of the dead influencing the environment. It's very spooky, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Good job you've been painting Death Guard, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, guys, I think that's pretty much everything for tonight at least um so if you are interested in learning more about the flashpoint charidon then you want to go pick up white dwarf issues 460 through 462 and you can dive into them yourselves um but for now i think we'll take a quick break and then we will just come back with our short community spotlight And we're back, guys. So for the final segment of the show, as always, we're just going to give a quick shout out to some of the interesting and exciting community members that we've seen out and about recently or just other aspects of the hobby at large that we wanted to highlight that we've been enjoying recently. So, um, Dan, do you want to start us off? Sure thing. Um, So I I picked this specifically because it's relevant to our spotlight topic. and that is uh, Sorcerer Dave doing solo battle reports on YouTube. Uh, this is a um, so I have mentioned Sorcerer Dave before because in the old in the good old days when we were allowed to play forty k together, uh, I was a a regular on his channel doing forty uh, k battle reports with a narrative persuasion. Um, he he mostly does video game stuff, but he's. Uh, also does some 40k uh, content 
uh, which is I, I think is very good. Obviously, some of it I'm on, so I quite like that. <laughs> um, but he's taken a leaf out of uh, Say Hi Paul's book, uh, who is another sort of community legend, uh, and started doing some battle reports where he's basically just filming himself playing both sides, uh, which is, feels a bit weird, like initially. And if you think of it as just kind of like a competitive game, it is very weird. Um, but if you think of it more as, as a you know a narrative story, then it makes a lot more sense because he's basically just puts down sets up a scenario and puts down two armies and plays them as they would play, uh, rather than trying to sort of out tactic himself. Um, yeah, I could, that's an interesting form. Yeah. I've, I've seen it done once or twice with Necromunda. Like battle reports, I've not seen it done by 40k yet. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting one to check out for sure. uh, As as a caveat, the one thing I will say is that these battle reports tend to take a lot longer to watch, like because they the the people uh, indulge themselves with kind of talking about everything because they don't have someone else to tell, like to yeah, bounce bounce conversation. So it's quite uh, like I think. Um, say hi Paul did one that was four hours long uh, and Sorcerer Dave recently posted one that was three and a half hours long so yeah. it's and you, your normal battle report is like hour and a half two hours so you get quite a lot more quite a lot more content uh, but it, it's you know it's more sort of it tends to be them talking about what they're doing and the kind of the, the sort of like narrative reasoning behind it uh, so it is still quite interesting to to listen to. It's quite good if you just stick on and, and listen to while you're uh, painting away. Um, it's it's another flavour of content. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm it, sure it'll have its own pros and cons and merits. Or yeah, make it I mean, interesting. The main pro is that it can happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. The fact that it exists and yes. can be done at the moment is. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I picked this specifically today because uh, Sorcerer Dave has done a couple of battles that he's used uh, the some of the battle zones we were just talking about uh, in his battle reports, so you awesome. can see them in action. Um, he used one of the the desert related ones. I think one of the ones we didn't talk about in the previous report, and then he recently did a, a battle with Word Bearers against uh, Sisters of Battle in the Mausoleum District. So uh, that was very appropriate. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone picked up any spooky bones afterwards, but uh, there was lots of um, uh, auras being reduced and improved uh, and, and lots stuff of like that. spooky shenanigans going yeah. on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, nice. Uh, I'd love to check it out. Um, I know myself, I've... <laughs> I've not actually been watching as much stuff recently because I have become somewhat a little bit addicted to <laughs> a brand new mobile game. <laughs> oh no! Uh, it's good. I've been enjoying it. It's the um, it's called Necromunda Gang Skirmish. Um, so I know the late last year the Necromunda game for like Xbox, PC, and primary gaming platforms. So I came out and had very mixed reviews, both positive and negative um, for various reasons. But this is actually, it's fun under the radar a little bit. And um, I knew it was upcoming just because of the guys over on SubCity Radio had been talking about it. Um, and I did actually be involved in the beta test, but the actual app itself released this week, last week. I don't know. 
I've lost all sense of time in the hive. Um, <laughs> but I've actually found it, it's a pretty damn good um, like representation of the game of Necromunda on mobile. Like it's, it's by no means, it's not like a port of the game. It's not like a tabletop simulator style thing. It is, it is a mobile game, so it has its own quirks that makes it a bit different to straight up game of Necromunda. But it's you know sort of like tile based movement. It uses the weapon systems and skill sets and things that are sort of taken from the game of Necromunda and applied to this game. The gang building aspect is there. One thing it actually does better, I think, than the board game or the tabletop game is it gives you a sense of controlling a widespread turf where your gang isn't really all in one place for a sort of like war style conflict but instead its members are scattered across your turf trying to hold its various interests um and uh sort of cycling in and out of duty based on who is and isn't injured and who's available to do what um so it's it's got a good bit of sort of like gang management um but also it has this you know 3d combat system to it that works really well and i've just been really enjoying it but my God, it does not pull punches. <laughs> it, it is one of these sort of like Iron Man style games um, where you can, because you, you essentially play in cycles. So sort of like these day and night cycles where you'll fight a battle which might be patrolling your turf or it might be defending a hab block or you'll be trying to raid a bad zone to get some you know, loot or credits or whatever. But if someone gets injured as a result of a fight, they might be out for, you know, four, six, eight cycles. So the next eight rounds of the game, then you're not going to have that ganger. Um, And equipment is faulty and scrapped together and not readily available. So you'll be fighting with knuckle dusters and shoddy sidearms and all sorts until you can start building up to things like the shock whips and the heavy stubbers and <laughs> you know the power weapons and so on but it's really good i've been really enjoying it when it's got a steep learning curve it took a while for me to sort of feel like i've got a handle on what is a good balance of risk reward management um because i could be a bit reckless and then suddenly i have most of my gang just like injured for several cycles and for that time i have to sacrifice upon some rep because i can't defend my turf as well because i've had to fall back to like one location with my two or three uninjured fighters just trying to hold my turf until i get my gangers healthy enough to join the active roster again Hmm. so it's i think it's very true to the nature of necromunda um one thing I would say, though, is that um, apparently, I don't know how tested this is, but when you like load up the game for the first time, um, there are four gangs you can currently play as, like Escher, Orlocks, Goliath, and Vansar. I booted up the game, and um, the Escher gang was the one available to me, and the other three were locked behind, you know, microtransaction slash in-game currency that you would grind a lot for. And I assumed that was the standard, like the default. I was like, Escher have quite often been the default option for stuff in any Necromunda product. 
but apparently it's not from what I heard from other people talking about it it randomizes which gang you get as your initial oh. unlock and I just got lucky that I actually had Escher as the one unlocked as the one I wanted but apparently if you uninstall and reinstall the game it will re-spin the RNG <laughs> So I don't know how, you know, feasible that is, but if you want to, um, you know, use Vansar and it isn't the one that's unlocked when you first install the game, maybe try it and see whether or not it changes. And if it does, just keep trying it until you get the gang you want. If you want to play Vansar, you sound like you're asking for your phone to be taken over by an STC. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, Give it a try if you if you like Necromunda, um, I think it's definitely worth a look. That's a Necromunda gang skirmish, and as far as I'm aware, you can pick it up on both Android and Apple. So, uh, yeah, that's what I've been playing a lot of for this last week. Fair enough. And uh, Dave, have you got anything for us? Yeah, I uh, just a couple of things. I've I've uh, been doing. I've fallen a little bit behind with some of my podcasts, so I spent a lot of time recently listening to the Spoos and Booze podcast, uh, which is a good uh, overall Games Workshop hobby roundup uh, sort of podcast if people are not familiar with it. And uh, they always have uh, things like their top threes and stuff like that, so uh, quite well structured, and I really enjoyed listening to those guys. Um, so, yeah, definitely recommend Spoos and Booze if you're not familiar with them. Um, and the other thing uh, I've been finding quite, quite inspirational with the hobby is. Um, a chap called Inso, uh, his real name's Steve. So, uh, you can find him hanging about in the, the Warhammer 40k Squats Facebook group. And uh, he's been sculpting um, new uh, squats or space dwarfs, so the Macrocosm Space Dwarfs range. And there have been a few Kickstarters featuring, um, featuring Steve's work. Um, he's also been struggling with uh, symptoms of long COVID. And whilst it's been knocking him back a bit, he can't move about a lot very much. He's uh, been persistently positive, uh, continuing to just sit down and do a bit of sculpting when he can. And uh, yeah, his positivity and working through all that uh, and bringing more joy to his hobby and sharing that with other people has been something that's been quite uplifting over the last few weeks. So uh, yeah, I don't know whether Steve actually listens to us. I suspect he doesn't, but uh, definitely shout out to him just in case he does. Uh, so yeah, Steve, I, I hope you're listening and I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> Uh, well, that's it from me, I think, Tony. So, uh, over to you. Lovely. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been um, it's been quite a nice, sort of, like casual chat tonight. Really, a lot of yeah. um, hobby chat, a lot of bone talk. <laughs> um, it's been a it's been a good show. I've enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully, the next couple of episodes will be featuring on the new book of Rust, the Plague Purge mission pack. Uh, and hopefully, um, Drakari on Crusade. Um, maybe some pig squigs in the future. Yes. Um, and eventually the inevitable march of the Admech on Crusade. So there's plenty to look forward to in the future. And if you have been enjoying the show and you want to look forward to more of it, then Definitely don't forget to like, subscribe, leave us five-star reviews or just whatever you you know you think we're worth. Um, it all helps to just help propagate the show, get it out there on you know podcasting algorithms, get it out there on YouTube, 
all the rest of it. And if you do really enjoy the show, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you join the Patreon, then you can hassle us anytime you like. You can send us all messages on our Facebook chat, and we will happily talk hobby with any of you anytime. So, um, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you, Dan and Dave, for coming on and joining me again on the show. No problem. Thank you, Tony. And until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k.